So the, the whole thesis uh, preaches the idea of, of the need of a community approach to policy making instead of an individual approach when dealing with energy issues. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Social Life of Energy. For today's edition, I'm talking with Beatriz Pineda Rivilla, who recently defended her doctoral thesis about the role that communities can play in shifting people's consciousness of energy and sustainability issues. Now, I have talked about such consciousness before. On the episode, What Do We Need Citizens For Anyway? I explored the idea that there might be moments particularly productive of change. Moments when we are taking out of our routines because of a life transition, a new job, new house, new kid, or because of a societal crisis, say a pandemic or apocalyptic wildfires. Now we have the sense of new possibilities or the urge to take a new direction. When your habitual ways of doing things are disrupted, you get some distance to them. You create some space for reflection. That's the idea, at least. However, the conclusion of that episode was, in a nutshell, yes, certain moments can make change possible, but not as much as you might think. That is in part because infrastructures don't change with our new insights. We may want to start biking to work, but we don't want to die riding along cars. But it also has to do with the fact that these earlier examples are about individuals coming to new realizations. It's more difficult going against the grain alone. What, therefore, if whole communities were involved in a moment of transition? Would that change the calculation? This question is Beatrice's doctoral stake in the ground. We won't be able to tell you the answer to that question by the end of this interview, because the question goes beyond the power of a mere researcher. Change takes time, which takes funding, and all of that is in short supply. So, Beatrice, wise beyond her years, cognizant of this predicament, took the pragmatic approach to bracket for now the question whether communities can collectively change energy practices, and instead, she settled on answering the question whether communities can, in fact, play a role in getting people out of their habits, create a space for reflection, and then make them more aware of the small daily choices that they make every day, as well as their implications. How do you do that? Well, the lessons of Freud have not been lost on social scientists. To surface the unconscious, you make people talk. As it so happens, Anthony Giddens was one of the people who made sure that Freud's legacy was not forgot. And Anthony Giddens happens to be one of Beatrice's main sources of inspiration. One of the principal ideas in her thesis is the notion of the energy discursive consciousness. This is a concept that is built on the work of Anthony Giddens. So he has a very now, a famous concept, which is practical and discursive consciousness. So in this case, uh, I kind of adjusted the, the concept and I applied to the energy domain, uh, calling it energy discursive consciousness. And I define it as the ability that the people have to put into words, so in a discursive manner, um, their energy-related practices. So basically how we are able to verbalize what we 
do or what we intend to do or what we think about something. And by having those uh, discursive exchanges within a community, uh, our ability to, yeah, to, to kind of realize uh, what we do is activated. So in talking about what we do, we create a degree of freedom. There is power in knowledge, agency in awareness. Again, Freud isn't far off here, though I will stress that I'm dragging the poor old psychoanalyst into this, likely against his will, if he knew I was doing it. Beatrice at least never mentioned him. She does mention cultivation. Which is uh, also based on another anthropologist's work, uh, Richard Wilk. And cultivation is the process that is um, activated when this ability to, yeah, to put into words in a discursive way what we do uh, happens. And this, I argue, happens within a community. And when this happens, it is kind of an, a window of opportunity for our practices to change. So now it's time to leave Freud behind us, because what Beatrice is talking about is precisely something that does not take place at the individual level, but at the social communal level. The words that we find are social. We ratify words as the most appropriate and proper in interaction with others. Do we consider eating meat normal or because we belong to a community of vegetarians, eating meat is a, you know, like the outlier? Or do we consider normal to fly to Bali every summer because that's what yeah, gives us pleasure or social status, or do we go to the Ardennes by train, or you know, and it's equally good. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this type of encounters and social relations uh, that happen within a community, I believe, are crucial in order to to shape our understandings of normality and to shape uh, social norms that are, yeah, kind of determining our need for energy. This is key to this theory of change. Because the process of taking stock, taking a step back, reflecting on what it is that we do and what it is that we value, because this is a collective process, it might actually stick. It gives insight a different emotional force. And knowing that others do as we do also strengthens our conviction that we are doing right. So social norms and how the interactions within a community of people who trust each other, who know each other for a long time, or who share similar values, how those relations uh, yeah, shape our understandings of normality and in that way shape also the social norms that guide our choices. All right, so far for theory. Let's get to some actual communities. How do you jumpstart collective cultivation? Well, you organize interventions. Beatrice organized them in three different communities, each quite different from the other. There was the small group of self-builders who experimented with new forms of sustainable housing construction in the north of Amsterdam. Then there was the Facebook group, Sustainable Amsterdam, which existed mostly online and consisted, well, you know what Facebook groups do, they share experiences, tips, and maybe do a little collectivism here and there. Finally, she worked with two neighborhood organizations in the east of Amsterdam. One mostly existed to promote the popularization of science in the neighborhood, 
whereas the other sought to support vulnerable groups by creating a space where people could meet each other and build new neighborhood ties. With that last organization, she held an energy quiz. And we work with a comedian and we kind of made the topic of uh, sustainability and energy consumption more approachable to an audience who is not really thinking too much about the energy that they consume. They have other priorities in their life. So basically, uh, by organizing this type of setting, which was entertaining, fun, easy, um, yeah, it was kind of a nice evening for the, yeah, for the members. So this type of intervention allow us to, yeah, bring up to the surface topics that otherwise would not have been brought. So for example, how long do you shower? Is it eight minutes, which is the average in the Netherlands normal for you or not? So in the, in the audience, there were reactions like eight minutes. Wow. I, I, I spent at least 15 or, oh, now eight minutes is quite okay. I even do it shorter. So this type of interactions happen thanks to also a comedian who brought a topic like sustainability to an audience that would have never gone to a, to a lecture on sustainability or on energy consumption. And through those encounters, together also with the comedian in this case, people, because they have the ability to reflect and to talk about what they do, they manage to go into this phase of cultivation. And during that uh, evening, they thought about it and they got their energy discursive consciousness activated. So after this uh, big energy neighborhood quiz, which was kind of the main event with the community, I had uh, the chance to, to do another three smaller energy quizzes with subgroups of this community. And during those yeah, conversations within uh, smaller groups, mm -hmm. we had the chance to reflect on some of the questions of the quiz and some of them came back to, yeah, to how they thought about it on the, on the night of the quiz and maybe yeah, they reflected on it and they were saying things like, for example, yeah, I'm quite, uh, going back to the example of souring, so I'm quite um, frugal with the way I sour, but my husband, for example, and, and my kids are completely the opposite. So sometimes I wonder if what I do makes any difference. I tell my husband to, yeah, to sour shorter, but yeah, he, he thinks or he says, you know, uh, souring gives me relaxation, so at least give me that. <laughs> For the researchers here who work on domestic energy practices, this will sound very familiar. But Beatrice's stake on this type of talk is noteworthy for two reasons. First, she's interested in such reflections, not as private deliberations, but as something that is taking place in public. What kind of effect does such public talk have on the social life of energy? The second reason is that she uncovers, underlying these surface deliberations, so to speak, a recurring moral frame, one which guides the deliberations a frame she calls decency. Understanding this frame could be quite instructive for our public debates about climate and energy, which tend to oscillate between the green environmentalist emphasis on the value of nature and the yellow vest resistance to the threat to the stability of their income. What if there was some way out of this false opposition? 
Let's take these two points in turn. We'll start with the decency and then circle back to the value of public discourse about energy. I wanted to have a discussion uh, within the community that was going to, the, to questioning the need we have for energy as individuals and as individuals within a group or within society as a whole. So in one of the uh, meetups with the Sustainable Community of Amsterdam, we were discussing the different type of appliances that the people have at home. So if you could choose only two uh, devices, which ones would you choose? And this is really to, yeah, to live minimal. And this type of questions put the participants into a, a state of mind that force them to to really think more minimal and to think in in the sense okay this is yeah this is now the situation so i don't i don't need or i, I cannot have like a 10 uh, devices even if they are super energy efficiency so what would be my real needs to continue yeah living a decent or a good life for me so many people use the, the word good I just try to be open to see which uh, activities were coming from the from the participants and from the members of these communities. Mm -hmm. I don't think decency was a word that they use very often. It was more like a yeah, a good life or a life that is uh, comfortable or yeah, a life that makes me happy or a life that I uh, that satisfies me. So this type of now not synonyms but uh, related terms were coming up. So part of, let's say, um, of our societal uh, discussions about sustainability, um, they are about deprivation. So the, um, that could be either, uh, oh, they're going to take something away from me, um, like my meat or my whatever, my pickup truck. <laughs> um, or um, it's about a, uh, the threat that it imposes, like things are going to be more expensive for me. So um, is there anything that we can learn about uh, what you've tried to do in yeah. stimulating people about a sort of to think about what is essential for a good life or for the life that they want to uh, lead? Is that a, a different yeah. way that you could we could have these kinds of discussions? Yes, yeah. uh, I think it is uh, a talking of, of decency allows us to go to a place where there is no blame or where there is no guilt. It is more kind of uh, uplifting and maybe making us realize that we can also live a good life with less. And having less might not be translated in yeah, losing, but maybe gaining. And this is also one of the frames that I discovered together with the sustainable community of Amsterdam. So it was interesting to see how a more a small group of members were into this uh, alternative hedonist uh, way of living, which in a way it is related to more minimalist uh, living, so living with less, but because it gives you pleasure. So in a way, these people found happiness in, fa in having less. So one, of the, one example was uh, this lady that was already living in this way for several, yeah, quite, uh, quite some years. And she was saying, you know, I chose for a, a smaller house because then I have a smaller mortgage and then I have more freedom to work less. And in that time that I have uh, extra, I, I do this volunteering or I do this hobby, which makes me happy. So she consciously chose for less to be more. Mm -hmm. And so 
in those discussions, decency uh, was also in the background. And, and yeah, it was interesting to see that many people in this, in the community, especially in the online sustainable community of Amsterdam, uh, yeah, this type of approach resonated quite nicely. So maybe we are now trapped in this uh, fast living and maybe one way is also to to need less mm -hmm. and maybe that can also be liberating and so in that way that was also the the approach that i wanted to to bring with this discussion so talking of decency is not like that you will get less or you will have to pay more because you have to but it is more like another way of living that might be a possibility that we haven't uh, explored yet, but might make us also happy and be the solution for some environmental changes that are right. happening. Right. So the prospect of a new kind of language to talk about energy futures is one implication of Beatrice's research. There is a second kind of implication as well, which pertains to when and where we should be having these conversations in the first place. The key idea here is that policymakers can and should build on energy discursive consciousness, which also means that they should promote it, not when they need people to give their input to a scheme of theirs, but now. Okay, um, I'm gonna. Uh, I want to use this overview of the different kinds of groups to talk about um, some policy implications of of your findings, mm -hmm. and um, I wanted to center it on on Amsterdam. Amsterdam is quite ambitious. Um, in terms of its sustainability um, goals, like it wants to get rid of its uh, natural gas as much as possible, as quick as possible. It recently adopted this donut model um, as kind of an official guideline for a new policy in the in the in the city. What would um, maybe your suggestion for Amsterdam be, or what would be be your um, mm. ideal policy package based on what you know now? So the the whole thesis uh, preaches the idea of, of the need of a community approach to policy making instead of an individual approach when dealing with energy issues. So, because communities are so different and it's not easy to kind of grasp the concept from a policy making perspective, I think it, it deserves attention also at this policy level to, to kind of see what are the existing communities that are uh, happening and that are strong and how analyzing and working with these communities can bring also extra value when yeah accelerating the energy transition and when you uh, when we talk about communities these communities are yeah there is some always some something that brings them extra close and to explore those connections i think is uh, valuable when trying to yeah, to approach the energy transition from the point of uh, shaping social norms and to kind of uh, challenging understandings of normality, because it is within uh, a group that you, uh, where you trust the others, where you start questioning if what you do, it is okay or normal or not uh, in comparison with the, yeah, with what the others do. And you need to, yeah, to be at ease and you need to be comfortable to talk about the uh, practices that sometimes are very private, which is what uh, most times maybe policymakers don't have access to. You know, there are many different intimate uh, aspects involved in many of the practices that happen 
within our houses that people do not share with policymakers, for example, but they might share with uh, community members. So uh, one of the policy recommendations that I think would be interesting is to invest in these in these existing communities, which might be, I don't know, one to ten per neighborhood, If since that is what is happening. Maybe it's good to build upon what is happening and add. So maybe to focus on some of the existing uh, communities within the neighborhood and to create like uh, these uh, teams. Um, I call them energy teams, which mm -hmm. uh, the idea behind is that they, they, they can support yeah, maintain these communities and to keep them active and to try to yeah to bring them further into this into this topic so how to uh, keep on doing this type of interventions on a normalized manner mm -hmm. like okay that. and who should be in those energy teams i think ideally would be uh, someone from the community maybe a social worker that is also that acknowledges the challenges and the different frames of the community, maybe someone from the municipality, and maybe why not uh, an artist or someone, an anthropologist, <laughs> or someone with, uh, with you know, like, yeah, a type of knowledge and flexibility that uh, can bring people together. Okay. That sounds like an um, awesome sentence um, to conclude this, uh, this interview. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much um, for talking about your research. You're welcome. <laughs>